The economic implications of the coronavirus are still unclear. But today we are here with Andrea Reyes, chair of the New York City Fair Trade Coalition and a professor of fashion marketing, international trade, and business development at Baruch College, LIM College, and the Fashion Institute of Technology to discuss how this increasing pandemic will disrupt the global supply chain from the fast fashion industry to the food. I think right now is such an important moment for customers to really think about their purchases because after this is all said and done, who do you want to see that's left over? Do you want to see the CVS that's on the corner or do you want to see that mom and pop store that sells maybe less of a variety but they're a part of our community. Um, same goes with coffee, right? Do I want to see my little Hamilton bakery over here survive or do I want to see Starbucks survive? So now is really the important time that we make sure that our money is going to the places that share ethics, the same ethics with us. My name is Jenny Dodari. I'm Caroline Klowinowski. And this is The Utopian. Our clothing is made in so many different places, you know, our cotton coming from Texas and going to Bangladesh to be carded and combed, so woven into threads, into yarn and dyed in another country and cut in another country and sewn together in another country because wherever a product is sewn is its country of origin, uh, is its birth certificate, as we say. So because of this fragmented supply chain, Think about how much fuel is used to move these things around. But somehow the price of clothing has gone down and down and down. And a lot of that is because we removed a lot of the protectionist acts that were put together in place after actually World War II. We came up with the World Trade Organization and the World Trade, or it was first the GATT ruling, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. So every product that was coming into this country or other countries had a classification code and it had a tariff or duty attached to it. And based on the lobbying within that country, it really dictated how high the tariff rate was going to be. So for a long time, we had really strong cotton lobbyists here. Uh, we wanted things made in America. So there was a very high tariff on cotton products that were coming from outside of the country and that kept the price of goods higher. And once we got rid of what we call the quota system, so products coming in, only a certain dollar value could come into the United States. Once we got rid of those quotas, it was like the tap was turned on full and all these cheap clothing could come into the United States now. So now all these big U.S. brands, instead of making things in the U.S. where they had unions and they had regulations and they had to provide a lot of services, they now went to countries that maybe still had unions and regulations, but they didn't have the enforcement behind it, right? A lot of countries, they may have these things, but they don't have the IRS to collect taxes to make sure that the police is being funded, that the fire department, that the library, all these social things that we benefit from here, all these social services that we benefit from in this country. So there was a flood of goods coming into the country, which resulted in the fast fashion movement, um, where we could buy things for $5. And if we trace that back, you know, half of that cost is for the brand's profit. And then if we divide that again or divide it by three, a third of that cost is for the actual materials. Maybe another third is for transportation. And the last third is for actual labor costs. So if you do the math, that is not a lot of money. So people really are working under conditions that they may be showing up to a job just so they can get a lunch, just so they can get housing. Um, in a lot of places in the world, people get paid once a month. And if your boss comes in and says, Hey, you know, a factory or a, a U.S. brand canceled an order because it didn't meet their standards. 
um, we can't pay you this month, they're going to keep coming to work because they don't have any other option. They're getting a meal at least. They're getting shelter at least. So a lot of problems have spurred around the free trade. um, And we're really trying to work towards fair trade. So fair trade meaning that Uh, we're going to pay workers a premium. So we're going to pay them extra bonus amount that they can decide either as a collective, if they're going to put it towards social services, maybe they're going to build a school, maybe they're going to have some sort of health care, maybe some sort of savings plan, but it's going to ensure that the worker has some safety nets and that they're going to be paid a fair wage, uh, a living wage. So A lot of these problems have been compounded over us and our mass consumption. And one of the things that we export the most of is our culture, right? Everybody wants to consume like an American. Everybody wants to be like an American, quote unquote. Um, It's amazing to think how many people around the world have seen the show Friends, right? Netflix is everywhere. Uh, Everybody wants to be sitting in a cafe, Um, not working, but looking fabulous. How are we going to do that? Through fast fashion. And that's, that's not okay. So we have to really highlight that you cannot promote empowerment to women. You cannot promote Black Lives Matter. You cannot promote environmental protection while you were wearing clothing that exploited another human being. I think that is called hypocrisy. With everything that's been happening recently with the coronavirus, we're seeing countries going into lockdown. What are some changes that you're already seeing happening with global supply chain as a result of the virus? Sure. So we actually have to go back a couple of months because this virus has happened during a a time of the year where factories normally close, specifically in China. So what happens a lot of times in the fashion industry, but I'm sure in other industries as well, in December, there's a mad rush to get all of your samples, uh, all of your orders placed, because once we have our holidays, then China goes into their Chinese New Year. So when Chinese New Year happens, once upon a time, the factories, things would really slow down for three weeks at a time. But because we're so demanding with the products that we need constantly, that over the past decade, maybe things really slow down for a week. But workers still go back home because a lot of the time people who are working in factories are not from that area. Maybe they work uh, and live in the same factory or that area of China is really just an industrial area where they're sending money back home. So they all decide to spend the new year back home with their families. And that is why we haven't really seen a lot of the impacts yet because we predict that slowdown. So supply chain takes a couple of months. So we're going to see more issues popping up in the next month or two uh, because a lot of the goods were already on their way because it does take about three weeks for things to leave China and end up in our ports, uh, specifically in the port of LA in California and port of Newark here in New Jersey. But companies are definitely predicting, especially Apple, uh, the price of their goods going up, but how much can their goods really go up when our economy here is not functioning how it should. So it is yet to be seen if these companies are going to keep their prices low to keep the American consumer buying. Um, so you mentioned that right now there's kind of like national holiday season that's going on in China. So it almost, like like you said, the impacts aren't being seen yet. And we're seeing that especially in China, they're really good at containing the virus. For example, in the last week, the number of new cases that arose were very, very, very low compared to what we're seeing in even just New York. So do you think that by the time the production process begins again, China will have already contained the virus? And I mean, of course, it won't be like nothing ever happened, but will they just be able to hit resume and continue Mm -hmm. with the process like they were able to? Mm -hmm. Uh, No, I do not think anything is going to resume as it's been. Uh, this is such a big shakeup that I really believe our systems are are changing. 
So China is an interesting system where they, so many factories are backed by the government. So they have a bit more, quote unquote, stability because they have that government funding. Um, as opposed to in the United States, there's a separation as long as we don't have bailouts. Um, so there's going to be a contraction here. So in China, you know, we had the holidays. Everybody was then stuck at home because the, the outbreak really took place during these Chinese New Year. And now the workers are starting to go back to their factories. But now a lot of American companies are canceling their orders, right, are reducing how much they're going to be buying because now the demand isn't as high. You know, we'll see how much the Internet economy can keep up with demand. But then we also have to think how many Americans are now not buying the way that they were because either they've lost their job or they're uncertain of their future income or they've lost money in the stock market. So everything is so in flux. Uh, we see that there has been normally there's economic disruption from like the financial side or economic disruption, which then affects the demand side. But we're seeing it from both ends. What does it mean that the economic destruction is coming from both sides? Have we seen this before anywhere else? Or how does that, how does that play out? Mm -hmm. So when we think of international trade, we actually trade five different things. We trade products, so goods. We trade services. Uh, we trade money. That's the number one thing that we trade in volume is money. Uh, we trade people. We don't really think of it that way. But when we have visas, we're actually paying for our entry. And then we also trade information. So out of those five things, so many of those things have been disrupted. So it is almost, uh, I don't want to say a, a blank slate moving forward, because it's not a blank slate. It's more of a mess that we have to untangle. And that's why I have hope in certain sense, um, because when there is a mass destruction like this, that is the time for real change. That is the time when we can really uh, sit down and decide that the old ways are not working and we can figure out what we want the new economy to look like, what we want the new idea of moving people around this globe to look like. So those five ways of international trade, since they've been so disrupted, now we can start to have that conversation uh, to talk about how we're going to rebuild it or how we want to change it. So when you think about rebuilding the world from this destruction, what does the process of rebuilding look like? And what does this new international order look like? That is a very tough question because, uh, as as the name of your podcast, uh, you know, we can dream up this utopian society, but you know, one person I, I I've been quoting Men in Black. I don't know if you remember this quote, but they said one person is smart. A group of people are are crazy and disruptive and scared. So I can have one conversation with a, an individual or a small group of individuals and we can get on the same page and we can come up with action items to move forward, but it's a, a, a much different thing to uh, have this be a global movement and have it be something that we can get many different types of people on board. So, you know, back to your question of how can we move this forward and dream of a new I hate to say world order because that sounds very much conspiracy. And as soon as I would hear somebody else say it, I would change the channel. But once we can learn how things have been working um, and we can talk more about fair trade, because I'm certainly an advocate for people understanding how us buying things affect people around the world, because we can go back to the early 90s when we had more protectionist acts in place and we had less free trade, so less goods moving around the, the world, and that ensured that we had higher labor rights here, meaning unions, protecting workers. So we have a lot of protectionism when it comes around corn or soybeans, a lot of protectionist things, even around cotton. A lot of cotton is grown in Texas, and we don't think of that, as opposed to 
globalization. I love last year, uh, a few economists were saying, oh, the experiment of globalization. I'm like, whoa, 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 you guys didn't know what was going to happen. This was all just an experiment. But then we had NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which connected Canada, the United States, and Mexico, opening up the borders, letting people move freely, money move freely, all the things that I talked about that we trade, goods, services move freely. But we have seen that in Mexico, the average wages have not rised. Uh, we can see even in America, American wages have stagnated. Uh, so I think we have to understand first how things have been working in order to redesign how we want things to work moving forward. So we're kind of seeing, especially in America, as a result of this virus, a lot of people are now talking about policies that benefit the people. For example, we're finally beginning to talk about universal paid sick leave at the point of the administration that we have today. So I, we, Carolyn and I, where we were talking to someone a few weeks ago, and she said, in order for the world to really change, we need a disaster or a revolution. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that this pandemic is the disaster that will awaken us into the world that you were talking about, where, you know, we do have equitable wages and fair trade is respected. Do you think this is the tipping point for the change that we've always needed? I think it would be very unfortunate if we didn't use this opportunity for that. I think it's very easy for people to um, go back to what they're comfortable, what they know, especially older populations. But I foresee if we don't stop, reevaluate, and change now, future disasters like this are going to happen, uh, whether it's further environmental destruction or diseases. There is definitely projections that something like this is not going to be um, one and done. It is going to be something that we see come up again and again. And so much of that has to do with how we are treating our planet, whether new diseases are able to survive longer because our planet is warming or because people are reaching to further corners of the globe. We know that this has come about because humans have interacted with species of animals that we hadn't uh, interacted with in the past. And because we are overrunning the globe, we are picking up new diseases. And because we are so interconnected, it is moving around the globe faster than it could have in the past. If you're afraid that people aren't going to take advantage of this revolution or a potential for an economic, economic revolution, will people in office want to, you know, keep moving forward and just work with what's worked before traditionally, because that's all they know, rather than looking to other solutions. So I think it's interesting to then analyze what the baby boomers, what their hallmarks have been. Um, And I think we forget how impactful communism was to them and how scared they are of socialism And I don't think we can come at our our baby boomers in a place of you're out of touch, you're out of of date, you need to understand that, you know, democratic socialism is not communism, but I don't even think we're having that conversation with our elders. I think we just kind of roll our eyes and aren't connecting the dots for them with what we've gone through and where we need to go, because to them, communism, whether in Russia or Soviet Union then or in Cuba, is still something that affects their decision making and their outlook on the world. So I think now is the time for the young people to organize. And I hate to say it's it's our time because that sounds very um, like, you know, I'm, I'm running an after school special. But I think it is a point where we can have a clear, unified voice and ask them very nicely to step aside or or at least organize for us to run for different offices, at least organize for us to provide social services that are so needed right now that our government isn't able to put together because they're too busy putting out, you know, larger fires. I think you're definitely right. And 
you know, before we can organize, like you said, we need to figure out what we're organizing for. And there is that immediate dichotomy that I'm either a capitalist or I'm a socialist or I'm a communist. And the reason we decided to form this podcast actually is because there was a book called Ill Fares the Land by Tony Jude. In the book, he basically takes you through the history of economic systems. And he says at the very end that we have been for some time recycling old systems that have been proven not to work. So what we need to do now is, you know, we need to take the critique of the boomers when they say that socialism stifles innovation. But we also need to listen to the millennials who say that capitalism doesn't humanize economics and it doesn't respect the human in the economic process. So we kind of need to integrate these ideas and come up with a new utopia. And, you know, we say utopia, but if we think about any political system or economic system that has come to place today, it was originally thought of as a utopia before it was implemented. So he um, argues that we need to be imaginative again and imagine large-scale utopias to aspire to. And, you know, that's kind of why we're here talking to you. And I kind of also wanted to pivot into this discussion on um, global fair trade um, because, you know, we're having problems domestically even with institutions in place to mitigate the impact of this pandemic What's the global sphere going to look like when, you know, we don't really have institutions to protect that worker in China that we were talking about? So what's the future like that in this really, really new realm we've entered of globalization where institutions don't exist to strengthen people's rights? Is the next step to build those institutions? How do we go about doing something like that? So it's interesting to think about how much of the world has changed in the past 10 years even. Because we think the birth of the iPhone is from 2007, and then people really were able to get the iPhone in, in 2009. So it's only been 10 years since we've had this unlimited knowledge at our fingertips. So from that alone, we can say that the power is in the consumer's hands. So the time that I used to have to rely on larger institutions to make sure that my products were safe, I can go directly to the brand or the company and say, I want you to show me that they're safe, right? I don't necessarily need some government organization uh, because we'll have more ability, whether it's blockchain technology, to provide transparency. Um, so the power is in the consumer's hand, you know, whether it is demanding a big company like Walmart set up cameras in their factories so I can see firsthand that those workers are being paid fairly or being treated fairly. Or I can make a direct connection through Etsy with the artisan in China who's doing it by hand, right? And then we see a resurgence here, uh, meaning in New York, but really in the United States and, and globally of people wanting to be artisans again. I was thinking the other day, oh, we, we've broken a couple of plates and I have a friend who is a ceramic artist. I'm like, you know what, now's the right time for me to reach out to him. And even if he's not able to produce, I can pay for them and he can produce when he's up and running again. Uh, so it's interesting how I can have a combination of supporting things globally and locally all at the same time, that I don't have to choose one or the other. And I think right now is such an important moment for customers to really think about their purchases, because after this is all said and done, who do you want to see that's left over? Do you want to see the CVS that's on the corner? Or do you want to see that mom and pop store that sells maybe less of a variety but they're a part of our community. Um, same goes with coffee, right? Do I want to see my little Hamilton bakery over here survive or do I want to see Starbucks survive? Um, so now is really the important time that we make sure that our money is going to the places that share ethics, the same ethics with us. So I think when it comes to reassessing 
the economy, we have things today that we didn't have in place. Uh, one thing that I'm really interested about is the subscription model. So much of our life has been changed to be on a subscription model where I'll pay X amount of dollars per month and I'll get unlimited services, whether it's my cell phone, my Netflix, you know, even we can look at Amazon Prime as a subscription. So for us in the fashion industry, our dream is to open up a subscription-based clothing company, uh, not just for new clothes, but for secondhand clothing. So for instance, you'll be able to go into a shop, you'll pay a monthly fee like you would at a gym, another subscription model, and you'll be able to bring in clothes and take clothes. And that's how we can kind of further disrupt, but I don't even think we need to at this point because it's being disrupted so much through this pandemic, uh, that this will be a time that we can really dismantle some of the old ways that promote human trafficking, that promote poor working conditions or using pesticides in areas where there's lots of people. There's so many things wrong with the fashion industry, and this can act like a reset. And we can also do that through our food, uh, even our education. So I think that now is the time that we can implement these changes. Yeah, and it'll be it'll be really hard to even go back to our old normal because uh, we're being so economically disrupted right now. Because I don't I don't not you know I don't study economics like Jenny, but it seems like it's going to take a really long time uh, just to get back to where we were. Um, you were talking about how people should be encouraged to support fair trade through, you know, local mom and pop stores and artisans and how you've seen it, um, a rise in that sort of um, artistry again in trade. And I was wondering, how can we support that right now when we're being so economically disrupted because of the pandemic? How you see a new vision of trade and economics play into, you know, supporting these local places at the same time? once this pandemic is over? Mm -hmm. So uh, right now, our global sourcing model is a fragmented model, meaning that cotton may come from Texas and then it's shipped to Bangladesh where it is combed and carded and, and dyed even. And then it will be shipped to India uh, where maybe it's knitted from the yarn into the actual textile then it could be shipped to China where it's cut there. And then maybe we sew it in a Caribbean country because we have special trade agreements. So this is just one example in the fashion industry, but it's similar for whether it's car parts or machine parts, where one country will specialize in a very specific component and then it will be shipped halfway around the world for assembling. I think after this pandemic, companies are going to find that they can't rely on that system anymore, whether it is more investment in opportunities here, um, certainly, because so many of our companies are going to disappear after an economic uh, crisis like this. We always see a consolidation um, and the government is going to have to work to provide jobs. So this is definitely an economic opportunity that I think that businesses will want to take advantage of because it's all about diversifying, right? You never do your production in one country because if there's natural disaster, economic unrest or uh, political unrest, then you have other countries that can do production. But since it's everywhere here, uh, the thing you can really only do is depend on your local economy. So I definitely think we're going to be seeing more production or resurgence of production uh, happening here in the U.S., if not just to create jobs and give, get people back to work, but also because it makes sense to have that uh, strong infrastructure here. So I think that will definitely take place and, and change how things currently are being manufactured. And I think that... Um, I think there's a common misconception that fair trade is much more expensive than normal products. But when we take into account how nor when I say normal products, there's this idea uh, planned obsolescence, right? Planned obsolescence that we're going to make things that break after a certain amount of time. And I think customers, especially sustainable customers, are not happy with that and looking to companies 
that have buyback programs, right? You're going to buy my clothes back, give me a discount, and you're going to recycle these, reuse these. I think we're going to see a greater push for that because I think people are irritated with the amount of packaging that comes. So I think this is going to change the way customers view their items. I'm certainly looking at my closet and thinking, wow, I had all these beautiful clothes that I no longer need because I'm stuck at home. So I'm now mending some of those clothes because I'm stuck at home, right? Uh, The amount of education that's taking place right now, whether it is webinars or we call them community call-ins. I also think a lot about how Netflix has made education somehow sexy. There's all these Netflix shows that are educating us about our food system, about where things are made. And I definitely have friends and family that would never go to pbs.org, but somehow stumble upon this in Netflix and are getting this mass education that they wouldn't have before. So I think it's also changing their frame of mind on how they're going to go out and purchase things. And whether these uh, companies that they purchase from, how they're supporting them, how they're giving back to them. So I I wanted to, you know, build on this conversation we're having about um, consumers voting with their wallet and empowering local businesses more. But we've seen in research studies from as early as 2019 that there is a consumer intention and behavior gap. So a lot of people want to be ethical consumers and they want to, you know, uh, support Goodwill or all of these other um, thrift shops like that or local businesses. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, they're getting a latte at Starbucks or they're going to H&M to shop. So how do we trust consumers when we're seeing that consumer intention and behavior gap? And how do we empower them to overcome it? It's interesting that we see customers that I'll call them the conscious consumer. So the conscious consumer is someone who is probably the hardest consumer to capture. They want to do a lot of research. They're very untrusting of advertisements. They want to see certifications or some sort of sort of um, transparency behind uh, what you're selling to them. More and more people are are turning towards that. Um, some of them because of health reasons. I certainly know people who can't wear polyester, who can't wear certain items because they're getting allergies to it. So it may be health concerns that they're they're um, going to be consuming too much plastic because of the the plastic fibers that are pulled off during the washing cycle um, from polyester clothing and end up in our waterways. So as more and more people notice things that either affect them firsthand or it becomes the norm, it changes from a niche market to a a mass market. And a lot of these consumer changes people are making and not aware of it so much per se. So H&M and Walmart are two of the largest purchasers of organic cotton. A lot of times people don't understand how the sustainable efforts that Walmart has put forward. I always say H&M is the the brand we love to hate, but how many people have gone into H&M, seen their conscious collection and said, hey, what's this? Did a little bit more research and quickly realized that it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be but it was put on their radar that sustainability was something. And it started them on their path to sustainability because it's a journey. It's it's a spectrum. No one's 100% sustainable. You can only try to be more and more sustainable. So the consumer is very educated, knowledgeable, is relying on testimonials, uh, people to recommend products and services. And there's certainly a, a large group that consumes just to consume But maybe after this pandemic, they're not going to be able to consume just to consume. Maybe that disposable income is not going to be there and they're going to have to make tougher choices. You know, a lot of the time we purchase things for emotional needs, right? I've had a good day. I've had a bad day. I'm going to buy something to make myself feel better. I can't do that right now, right? 
I've had a rough day. I can't go out to a store. There aren't any stores open. So we're getting this adjustment into our shopping habits where I've had a good day, I've had a bad day. I now go take a walk in the park. Somebody said to me the other day, New York is turning into LA. Everybody's outside running, doing fitness. So this is changing our behaviors in ways that we can't even realize. And at the same time, you know, the way we shop is is very fragmented. For instance, I may buy secondhand clothing when it comes to jeans. I may swap clothing when it comes to my sweaters. I may buy expensive fair trade shoes because I want them to last a long time and I go to the cobblers and get them fixed. And I may buy uh, luxury handbags because to me, you know, Louis Vuitton is somehow sustainable because who knows why. But in my mind, that could, you know, work out. So we can't define any one customer as this or that because they have all of the opportunities at their fingertips. Um, and we can look at the same way for food. I can go across the street to my key food. I can go downstairs to my uh, fruit stand or I can buy my specialty things online. Uh, what kind of customer does that make me? A diverse one, one that has a lot of options and a lot of opportunities. So I think that this is a time where we're going to have to analyze really how this is shifting people's decision making and from past recessions or past financial instability, we know that people tend to save more and tend to obviously consume less. Um, hopefully, many of us learned from the last financial collapse and had done some savings, but statistics show that Americans still are not big into saving and providing some sort of nest egg for a crisis like this. I, I hope you're right. And I hope that this really does change things because if it doesn't, then I think we can lose hope for humanity. But um, something else that I wanted to ask you, it's related to what you mentioned earlier about how you think that investors are going to start investing domestically because they're going to realize that the very globalized supply chain is not sustainable, if I'm using the right word. But so, you know, we've seen in the past that Whenever there is a re recession like this, there's usually that momentary period of doubt where investors are kind of skeptical to invest and they're kind of tiptoeing around everything. But there eventually comes a time when it almost seems like everyone undergoes like an economic amnesia and um, investors become really exuberant again. And, you know, everything is kind of like Caroline was saying earlier, going back to normal. Do you think we're going to see that where we, uh, investors do for some time uh, try to invest in domestic institutions or corporations. But then after a little while, it's like, you know, it was kind of cheaper to hire that worker in um, Pakistan to make my product. So do you think that we're going to go through that again? And then if we don't, if there really is this transition into more investment in domestic production, what happens to the workers abroad that... You know, they're not being paid equitable wages or livable wages, and it's completely scornful. But um, they had some job before this transition. So how do we hold countries like India or um, even countries like the Congo, where the political institutions are not as strong? How do we hold them accountable for employing their workers and maintaining some sort of wage stream? for the people that were formerly employed by foreign corporations. Yeah, so it's unfortunate that we've seen from past financial crises that investors often profit largely after crisis, uh, whether it's, it's war or it's environmental, um, the rich benefit off of this. And, and that is why it was very sad um, after the last financial collapse, we had put things in place um, and they have been peeled back over the past couple of years, resulting in more instability. I don't, uh, a part of me says the realistic size, you know what, this isn't going to change. 
But then another part of me thinks about how much sustainability has grown in the consciousness of the investor. Right before this, one of the largest investment companies decided that they were no longer going to, uh, or they were going to start to consider climate change while they were making their investments. Uh, That's huge. That's huge that they're actually acknowledging climate change is real. It impacts their investments. Uh, You know, you had mentioned that a silver lining of this is uh, talks about some sort of health care for all. And we can also look at this almost as um, uh, a basic living wage. You know, that's been passed around that they're going to pay everyone a thousand to two thousand dollars a month until the crisis is over. How could we just get rid of that last part and say, just pay everyone one thousand to two thousand dollars a month, dot, dot, dot before this crisis, a lot of things were changing in investment. Um, A lot of ways of thinking of new systems and new social services were being thrown around. And now I believe that it's taken this kind of disaster for hopefully the baby boomers and those that are in power um, to understand that these things are not only viable, but they are sorely needed, sorely, sorely needed. Um, and as far as your question, when it comes to the domestic or the, the worker abroad, I think they're going to be thinking similar to us, where they can't rely on the global supply chain, that they also need to build up their uh, infrastructure and their domestic um, ability, whether it's to produce food or have a diverse economy um, and not an economy purely reliant on one industry. We can see there's the oil struggle right now with Saudi Arabia, um, how they supply much of the world's oil, but we, because of fracking, supply a lot of oil now too. And that has set uh, the oil prices to go down. Normally, a crisis like this, one country would have the economic opportunity to set oil prices high. But because many countries are playing this game, it's leveled the playing field. So I I think that with oil prices going down, what is a more reliable energy source? Is it solar and wind? Probably right now. Um, So I think that's also going to be changing people's, you know, idea of, of what is a better uh, long-term or short-term strategy when it comes to their investment portfolios. Um, But yeah, just to to cap on the the workers abroad, I think that, you know, if we're demanding our goods to be made in better conditions, and we do come from this global economy uh, where every single country has a wealthy class. Every single country, whether it's small or or medium size, has some sort of middle class. And I think uh, countries, especially after this, are realizing that the only way to have a stronger middle class is to have a strong domestic workforce and a strong domestic diverse uh, economy. So if we do turn all production domestic, I think that, you know, all industries will obviously be very intensely impacted, but I think one of the industries that will be most impacted for the consumer is food, because right now we're very used to having pretty much anything that we can imagine at all seasons, whenever we want it. Do you think that consumers, especially in a country like America, where they're so used to just having everything in the supermarket, how, are, how is the transition going to be when, you know, if I want peaches, well, it's not peach season, so there's no peach in the supermarket. Do you think that consumers will be able to adapt to something like that? And I know that sounds like such a silly question, <laughs> but um, the, the other side of things is not a reality that we're accustomed to. Are we going to be able to adapt to something like that? I think we're definitely not going to move towards a completely, you know, protectionist domestic economy. Um, We are interconnected and that's going to remain. I do think that one way to stimulate the economy, though, is to build up the industries here. So definitely not cutting off those supply chain options, 
but realizing that we need to still have strong domestic capabilities for our own national security in a sense. But I definitely think that crises like this uh, spur innovation and will set us down the path where uh, maybe we'll have to do without for a certain period of time. But I don't think that once we've, you know, tasted that fruit, we're going to go back to, to not having it anymore. I'm curious how the next couple of weeks or months are going to play out. Uh, if I don't want to go as far as to say food shortages, but shortages of maybe certain things that you were talking about, you know, maybe our avocados. Um, we'll see if people get used to that, if that's going to become the new normal that, you know, having strawberries is a special occasion. Um, but then there's so much new technologies taking place in food production. Um, one of my favorite companies is Gotham Greens. Gotham Greens grows all their salad. Um, they have a big grow house on top of the Whole Foods in Gowanus. Um, and they have a vertical, what's the word, a vertical farm. So we can have vertical farms uh, that are producing things in a, a, a small space that are using aquaponics and hydroponics and grow lamps and things like that um, to make sure that we're getting the types of food that we want year round. And we're also realizing that we can't uh, continue down the process of producing one crop continuously because it depletes the soil so much. We already do crop rotations, but the ideal is to have, maybe not biomimicry, what's the word I'm looking for? Biodiversity within what we're growing. So I recently heard this woman give a, a presentation and uh, this guy had invented a big tractor that had all of these cameras and all these sensors so as the tractor went down the field it could identify what was the plant and what was the pest or what was the uh, weed and it could shoot a concentrated amount of pesticide just on the weed now it could also censor the different types of um, crops so you can have different crops all together that are feeding one another creating an ecosystem where the soil isn't going to be depleted so there's all these technologies out there, and that's not even to say growing meat, which we know is something that has grown exponentially, the amount of companies that are doing that. So I think there will be more innovation uh, when it comes around food, especially if there are uh, any sort of food shortages. One question I have, um, you know, are, are fishermen still fishing during this crisis? Is that something that's been shut down? Are we going to see less fish? Is that good? Should fish be something that is a higher price, that it isn't something we just consume um, freely or, you know, wild fish at that. But, but then we have fish farms. So there's all these different options out there, how we get our things. Um, I think we just need to be concerned that whether the food that we're eating ha has the nutritional value that it should have or it's becoming kind of fake food that that doesn't um, give us the nutrients that we need. I just wanted to say that it really sounds like you're optimistic about the uh, America's ability to like revolutionize and shift in the next couple months or years. I think, um, you know, one thing that studies have shown is we're not bored anymore, right? We always have our phone on us, always something to distract us. And I think people are are bored at the moment and boredom spurs a lot of imagination and innovation. And it's interesting, you know, is the length of this going to be more beneficial to us in the long run? Um, as long as the government can put plans in place where, you know, the, the person who lost their restaurant job is able to claim benefits and and have food security, have housing security, will that give them the time and space to think up the next brilliant idea, give them the time and space to connect with people to fulfill those brilliant ideas? Uh, so the Fair Trade Coalition, I'm so proud of them right now. Our WhatsApp groups are just lighting up all the time. Uh, you know, whether one person is 
you know, taking this time to start a new business, start a new service. Uh, we've activated around making masks and they're doing so much research to make sure that they're sewing masks that are of high quality that can be used. Um, but I think this is one of those situations that is bringing them together in ways that they wouldn't have been brought together in the past. And I think it's going to show them the power that they have of collecting uh, information, of collecting resources, of working together. Um, so I'm so proud to have, you know, be a part of this organization to kind of have created that structure that now they can run with it. So I definitely have hope. And, you know, I think my hope comes from the, the fact that I've always believed, whether it's our environmental crisis or our health crisis or our homeless crisis, that we have the skills and we have the solutions. Uh, we just need to configure them in the right way. And the fact that we're all um, thinking about these things collectively at the same time is very interesting. And it will be very interesting to see uh, what this produces. I know that your um, your specialty is fashion, but I wanted to talk about the inevitable because you are an economist. Everyone is toilet paper hoarding right now. If the government does kind of give all workers this universal basic income, then a lot of people are going to be home, which means that there is going to be some sort of disruption in production. So should we expect that in the next few weeks, is it rational to expect that um, our supermarkets or our groceries or um, our shops, they're going to start emptying out? Or are they just going to be able to stock up? I don't think that they are going to run out of things because when it comes to food, so many of the things that we consume are automated. Unfortunately, those are the things that aren't very healthy for us. Uh, I will say my fruit stands, I have not seen them go low on supplies in any way, shape, or form here. I think we have strong supply chains when it comes to our basic needs here. It's just a matter of are people going to have trust and confidence in those or are people going to freak out and go and, and consume things and do it out of sheer panic? I'm going to trust, trust that the system is going to keep working and be very grateful that I am in a country where it is going to keep working um, because I've definitely been to places and lived in places that the norm is things go out of stock and they don't go back in stock for some time. What, what are those places, if you don't mind? Yes. Yeah, so I work with artisans in Uganda. I lived in Uganda for a few years, and I go back every year for a month or two. Um, and I'm very nervous for, for my East African friends. You know, if we're having issues here, uh, those issues are just going to be compacted by the lack of, of resources and infrastructure. Right. So when we're kind of talking about a country like Uganda, you briefly touched on this when we were talking about China earlier. But um, you I mean, you mentioned that it's clearly going to be harder hit because of the lack of resources to combat what's happening. How is the change in, you know, the global supply chain that's already occurring? How is it impacting Uganda? What are the immediate changes that are already happening. And then just kind of extending this conversation to how do you think that the local economies will suffer? And um, in addition to that, not just talking about Uganda, but, you know, in places like Congo or um, Costa Rica, where, you know, American companies are relying on those areas for so much of outsourced labor how are they going to see an immediate hit because of this pandemic? So a lot of the time, um, companies don't own the factories, right? They'll outsource. So I may be uh, a large brand and I contact this factory, this factory, and this factory. 
uh, to do my production. And because they've had to send all their workers home, that factory collapses. That factory no longer is opening back up. So now I have to scramble as a sourcing person to find those items um, or to find that factory. And it's really being built on relationships, right? It's building relationships that say, you know, we've done business for X amount. When do you think you can open back up? But a lot of people are in desperate situations where maybe the factory isn't going to close and they're just going to run the risk of getting sick. And, you know, so many of these countries do not have uh, any sort of unemployment packages or aren't going to have any sort of stimulus. Um, So as per any crisis, the poor are always going to suffer more. That Starbucks is going to exist, but that that Starbucks, you know, down the chain that collects that coffee may not fare so well. One really interesting uh, article that I read, uh, why Italy was hit so hard with this virus is because in Northern Italy, there were a lot of factories that were owned uh, by Chinese uh, companies to do their production. And they actually had direct flights from Wuhan to Italy going back and forth uh, because they would bring a lot of uh, Chinese workers to work in those factories. And that's how the virus spread so fast. And that's very unfortunate because it has to do with, once again, uh, those five things that we trade internationally. And people are definitely one of them, uh, whether it's not just vacation, right? It's, It's migrant workers traveling very far and They were definitely unregulated workers, but the Italian government kind of looked the other way because they were bringing economic opportunity, uh, right? Is it, is it made in Italy if it's made by Chinese workers in a Chinese factory and it just happens to be in Italy? Um, so yeah, I think that's a very interesting, uh, fact to this that I'm not sure a lot of people know about. Um, people want to be fair consumers, how do you suggest that they go about that and track supply chains? Um, You definitely have to do your research and you also have to, I hate to say it, but um, check your expectations. Amazon has set us up to expect things within 48 hours to receive something in five days seems ridiculous. So if I want to buy something from an artisan, it may take a little bit longer. Um, it's going to require more research on my part, uh, not necessarily because I don't believe what the website is saying or, you know, maybe the testimonials are saying, but because it may be a little bit higher price. And I may feel as though uh, I really need to feel secure about this decision before I hit buy. Um So on our website, so nycftc.com, we have a directory there for all of our businesses, all of our business members. Um, We are not a certifier, so anyone can become a business member, but we encourage all of our businesses to slowly make their way towards certifications. Um, So when you go on their website, you'll clearly see if they are certified, those logos that are there. And... If you aren't sure, you have the power now to reach out and you can say, hey, how is how are your things made? Does this have this in it? Um, And if they don't get back to you, that's a pretty clear indicator that they either don't know what you're talking about um, or they're claiming things that chances are the information's not there versus people claiming things that are inaccurate. If you're looking on a smaller level, on a bigger level, Fairtrade USA they have been doing a wonderful job working with partners. Uh, so now there's a fair trade denim line at Madewell. I hear a fair trade line is also um, for denim at Target. Um, you know, like I said, we we love to hate H&M, but H&M uh, basic organic uh, clothing is still uh, probably better than I would say, you know, Zara polyester clothing. There's always trade-offs. You're never going to get it right. You just hope that you buy something that uh, follows your ethics because I may care a lot about animal rights and no animal testing. I may care a lot about organics and no pesticides, 
Um, I may care a lot about the quality of my clothing. I've started to buy recycled polyester um, workout clothing because it will last me 10 times more than that organic cotton legging that starts to get holes in it after a year. So that's a trade-off, you know, how much I'm going to wear it versus how long it's actually going to last for. The fact that they're getting little holes in it means that it can compost probably too. So that's not a terrible thing. Uh, So really kind of deciding what your criteria is at that time for that item. But we love to shop and we love to do research and we love to, you know, feel like we're getting a deal. We just need to change um, our mentality of what a deal is. Thank you.